as we begin part one of our new series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture. It's my hope that uh, you'll grab your notebook, uh, your study guide, I should say, and an ink pen or pencil or uh, something to write with, and be ready to take some notes as we're going to cover some incredible content. So last week we did begin this series, but it was merely an introduction, and we covered kind of the information that's located in the preface of this study guide. But today we're going to cover Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and lesson 1 within the pages of our study guide. I want to remind you, and especially, specifically, if you weren't here last Sunday, what our introductory content was like. We covered uh, Acts in a concept, or in a summary, last Sunday morning. If we were to look at the entirety of the book of Acts and attempt to conceptualize or summarize the happenings of the book of Acts in one text within that book, I believe that it would be found in chapter 17, specifically verses 1 through 7. And so that's what we looked at last Sunday morning. And there in that introductory lesson, and by the way, if you missed it, it's available on our YouTube channel, uh, going to be available on our website, and it's available on our Facebook page as well. But we covered that concept that is summarized in Acts chapter 17 when Paul and his comrades, his fellow brothers and sisters in ministry, entered the city of Thessalonica on their second missionary journey. And they come there and they begin to go in and preach and teach the gospel in the Jewish synagogues and all the people in Thessalonica heard about it and man it turned into an uproar okay so there were some certain Jewish leaders uh, who just really 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 detested the work that Paul and his brothers and sisters were doing there and they got so angry that they began to go through the city of Thessalonica and find out where Paul was staying and they were gonna just persecute him man and they couldn't find Paul but they found out where Paul was staying he was staying in the house of a man who was named Jason and Jason lived in Thessalonica and so since they couldn't find Paul and his comrades, they just grab a hold of Jason and they grab a hold of whoever else was in his house or sitting on his front porch and they just begin to drag those men and women through the streets, literally. And they drag them to the city council and they made this comment, and I believe this comment in Acts chapter 17 verses 6 and 7 is, is, is Acts conceptualized, it's Acts summarized. They said, these men who have upset the entire world. They have turned the world upside down. Well, they've come here to Thessalonica too. And they're preaching this message that there's another king besides Caesar. As a matter of fact, they say there is a king named Jesus. And if we could summarize the book of Acts in a statement, it would be that very statement. But as we backtrack this morning, and we're going to look at the, uh, the first chapter, the first 11 verses of the book of Acts, it's going to be a little bit of a contrast, if you will. Comparatively speaking, from the summary of the book of Acts, from the overall concept of the book of Acts, looking at the introduction to the book of Acts, they're very different. This revolutionary movement known as Christianity that we're going to study in this sermon series, looking in the book of Acts in detail, its commencement, the commencement of this revolution was less than appealing. 
It was far from revolutionary. How this entire thing began was different than any other beginning of any other revolution in history that I have ever heard about or read about it. Let me share it with you. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 6 through verse 11. And the scripture says, when they had all come together, let me, let me pause this and give you a little backdrop in case you're not familiar. This is about 40 days after Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, which was three days after he'd been crucified. So if you can imagine this last month and a half for the disciples, uh, the, the men who we're going to read about here, had been an absolute emotional roller coaster. Okay, so they had experienced their leader, uh, who they thought was going to overthrow the Roman government and bring them political freedom. And then all of a sudden he dies on a cross. And what kind of leader is this that's going to overthrow the Roman government or so they had interpreted? And now he dies on a Roman cross, a Roman crucifixion. And then they're like, man, what in the world is going on? And then all of a sudden the next Sunday morning, they hear someone stolen the body of Jesus. And then all of a sudden they're just hanging around, you know, uh, talking. And then all of a sudden the door is locked because they're afraid that they're going to, uh, they're afraid they're going to be arrested like Jesus was. And then all of a sudden out of the middle of nowhere, Jesus just appears right there in the room with them. And you talk about absolutely something that would mess you up in your mind. And the first thing, one of the first things he says to him is, uh, give me something to eat. You know, hey guys, I've had a rough weekend. Uh, help me out here. Give me some food. And they're like, what? Ghosts don't eat. What in the world is going on here? It was Jesus in his resurrected bodily form. And so for 40 days prior to where we're reading in Acts chapter 1 at verse 6, Jesus has walked with them and talked with them, and done life with them, as we would say in today's culture, in his resurrected body. And so now they're just like, man, what in the world is going to happen next? This guy, we thought he was going to lead a revolution, then he dies on a cross, and then we think he's gone, and then he resurrects from the dead. Now he's been hanging out with us for a month and a half, and what's going to happen next? And that's exactly the question we're going to answer this morning. Verse 6. So when they'd all come together with Jesus, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I'll pause there a moment and let you know this is another reference to the overthrow of the Roman government who was oppressing Israel in the first century. Verse 7, Jesus replies to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And there's a, there's a depth of value there that we're not going to go into this morning. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the most remote parts of the earth. And then after he had said these things, now get this, remember their emotional roller coaster they've walked. Remember the spiritual roller coaster that they've survived through the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then hanging out with him in his resurrected bodily form for some 40 days. Jesus is talking to them. They're asking him questions. Lord, what's next? What's next? Are you going to do this? And Jesus said, ah, you don't really need to worry about this, but this is going to happen. And huh, what do you mean? This, that statement didn't really make any sense. And then all of a sudden in verse Verse 9, after he had said these things, right then he just began to be lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine? And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going away, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Now oftentimes we picture this as if these angels in white clothing are, are at the opening of the clouds in the sky, but that's not the context that scripture gives us. These men are standing beside the, beside the disciples and the they say to them in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus.
Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come again just the same way that you have watched him go. So let me ask you this question. What revolution begins by the leader disappearing into a poof of clouds? I mean, no revolution, right? Every revolution requires a leader. And just imagine, just, just, just uh, display this picture in your mind, if you will, of these men and women who had walked such an emotional, spiritual roller coaster. And there had been ups and downs, and they'd followed Jesus. Many of them had literally, who were experiencing this in Acts chapter 1, they had literally left behind the entirety of their lives, their families, their jobs, their, their, their hometowns, everything to follow Jesus in this ministry. And I don't really have time to deal with the theology there, but they had left behind everything to follow Him. And imagine their disappointment just a month and a half or less ago when Jesus is all of a sudden arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane you know one minute he's fussing at them because he's praying and they fall asleep and then all of a sudden here comes Roman soldiers here comes Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus with a kiss which is incredibly significant but we're not going to talk about that this Sunday that's next week's lesson and then they arrest Jesus and some of the disciples fight back but Jesus is like no this has got to happen and then he's crucified he's buried and they don't know what's going on then he resurrects and now he just hangs out with them for 40 days and then all of a sudden he disappears in a poof of a cloud. Can you imagine if you were here listening to me this morning, maybe some of you would enjoy it. If I just disappeared and all of a sudden I wasn't here talking anymore, you would say, well, it's time to go to the Mexican restaurant for lunch, right? That wasn't the thought process in the minds of the men and women in Acts chapter 1. They were probably absolutely perplexed. So it is necessary that we understand this revolution that we'll read about known as Christianity in the book of Acts did not have revolutionary beginnings. Its beginnings are unlike any other revolution in history. And that, my friend, is why it ends like, unlike any other revolution in history. But we'll get to that later. With this humble beginning that we observe this morning in the first 11 verses of the first chapter of Acts, with this humble beginning... Uh, we're going to see something that is an incredible analogy that I want you to jot down if you're taking notes. Because I'm going to reference this a multitude of times over the next 25 weeks as we cover, well, 24 weeks being where we are today, as we cover the book of Acts in its entirety. And the analogy is this, that Acts is to the church what Genesis is to creation. Keep that in mind again. Write it down if you need to. Acts is to the church what Genesis is to creation. So let's just kind of jog our minds for a moment. What in the world was going on in the beginning of the creation story? Because the same thing that's happening way back there in the beginning of the creation story, I'm going to present to you this morning, was happening in the first chapter of Acts. And I believe wholeheartedly, without a doubt, that we as the church as a whole, not just here at Journey, but we're experiencing something so incredibly similar, uh, eerily similar. And I believe that there are many here this morning personally in their lives who are experiencing something that is also incredibly similar. So seeing this less than glorious introduction, we're going to interpret this in light of what happened in the beginning of the creation story. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The scripture says there, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Okay, that's a good statement, right? In the beginning, God makes the heavens and the earth, and everything else that God makes from here on out, He's going to look at it and say it's good. But there's a bit of a pause. There's a bit of a uh, parenthetical text, we would call it, in verse 2 of Genesis 1, because it pauses creation for an undocumented amount of time to observe the state of what God has created thus far. This is going to be really good. So look at this. And the scripture says, The earth was then formless and void, and darkness was over the entire surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the waters or on the surface of the earth. So in its inception, in creation's inception, before there was light and darkness, before there was uh, beasts of the field and birds of the air and fish of the sea, long before, well, uh, sometime before man roamed the earth, uh, long before the earth had anything comely or attractive or appealing about it, the scripture just says God created the heavens and the earth, and there it sat, worthless or empty and void. Null and void. It had no beauty to it. It had no attraction to it. And it had no purpose to it yet. Hang with me this morning. The state of the earth was desolate. And it was destitute. There was no charm. There was no attraction. And maybe you feel that way in your personal life this morning. You feel like you're at a place spiritually where you say, God is doing something, but I don't know what He's doing. And he, I know He worked in my life in the past. And I think He's going to work in my life again in the future. But I'm just kind of in this place where I feel exactly how the earth was described in verse 2 of Genesis 1. I feel formless and void. For us as pastors and ministry leaders, we're looking at the church in a totally different aspect than what we've ever had to view it in our lifetimes. And if we're not careful, we nearly just see it as formless and void. But I want to present to you this principle this morning, that when God is working with something that is currently formless and void, there is a purpose and there is an intent that He is going to shape out of that lack of form and out of that abundance of void and he's going to make something incredibly beautiful about it. So Acts is a presentation that as the creation is, uh, the cre Genesis is to creation, so is Acts to the church. And just as the earth that is here null and void, formless and void, just as the earth is to humanity, it was blank, it was a blank slate, but God said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that, and that, and that, and just give me some time. And this is going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. The same thing was happening in Acts chapter 1. Yes. Jesus is just walking along and he's talking and he's looking and everybody's having a good time and then all of a sudden he's gone. And it seems like the revolution is formless and void. And how in the world is anything good going to come out of this? And Jesus just told us to wait at Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. What's the promise of the Father? What do you mean we're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon us? What in the world is going on here? It was a blank slate. It was formless and it was void. But God was not absent from the picture. He was still working. So if your life this morning feels formless and void and you say, Man, there is, just, there is nothing good going on here and I can't see God. God at work, rest assured in the fact that He is at work even when you don't see Him, even when you don't feel Him, and even when you don't have a clue what He's doing in your life. Are you with me this morning? But the times of preparation, those times of formlessness and void, 
Those times, I'm going to call, times in prep, time, call those times of preparation for the sake of this morning's lesson. Those times are incredibly difficult to live through in life. Because those are the times that we just feel like we're not on a mountaintop. And we're not necessarily in a valley, but it's just a blah plateau. God, what are you doing here? What are you up to? What in the world is happening? I know you did this. You created the earth or in, in, the, in the Acts narrative. I know you were crucified and I know you were uh, resurrected and you walk with us and it's incredible. Then all of a sudden you've disappeared. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I've had an experience with God and I know He's real. And I know He's worked in my life. And I know He's called me to do something. I know He's going to do something with me. But right now I'm just in that formless and void spot. And I don't know what to do. I'm so thankful you asked. Because as unpleasant as the times of preparation was not only for the disciples, and as unpleasant as it looked in the story of creation, and as unpleasant as it is for us today, especially if you're there personally, I want to share with you, uh, within the depths of the first 11 verses of the book of Genesis, that there is a great dynamic context that's going to display for us how those disciples lived through that time of preparation and set themselves up or were set up by God I guess is a more proper terminology to be the forefathers of the revolution known as Christianity and the same thing that caused them to endure through that time of preparation applies to my life and it applies to your life today in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic let's look in the depths of this text and let's see just exactly what these disciples had in their backpack, what they had in their pocket, what they had to cling to to help them survive the time of preparation. I want to say to you this morning before we get into that, you, 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 you must have an experience with God in order to hold through that time of preparation to be able to have the next experience with God. Let's look at specifics this morning before I become sidetracked. The first thing that I believe these disciples possessed that was of great value, incredible value, was the knowledge that they were waiting on something. Okay, so when Jesus is walking along with them, we read about it once already, and I don't want to bore you with repetitive content, but Jesus is walking along, and they're asking him questions. They said, is this, you know, you've been with us in bodily resurrected form for 40 days now. Is this time for God to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, come on, this had been the question that these guys and gals had been asking Jesus since day one, and yeah, they'd get caught up in his awesome teaching and forget about it, and they'd get caught up in the miracles and the healings and all these things and forget about it momentarily but then it would repetitively come up again and again and again when are we going to overthrow the Romans and Jesus replies in an incredible way he says don't worry if I may paraphrase he says don't worry about Israel once again possessing authority and here's why you don't need to worry about it he said because you will receive authority or you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is right here. And in Judea, which is just a little way south. And in Samaria, which is another part. We won't get into the theological context there. And then all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. So picture this. And I don't really know how to... Uh, 
how to verbalize this in a non-offensive manner. But just let me say what the, where the Israelites were, where the, where the disciples were here, or were at here. They were at a place where they were politically oppressed and they disagreed with their political leaders vehemently, man, probably more than any of us do today. And Jesus, they're talking to Jesus, they're saying, are you going to give us freedom from these tyrants, these Roman tyrants? Are you going to give us power to overcome them? And Jesus looks at them and he said, you don't really need to worry about that because you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth and that my friend if I may tack a little extra word onto Jesus' statement is what you need to be concerned about. They knew that they were waiting on something. Now they couldn't understand it and they didn't have the full concept of it embraced yet and uh, probably just like we don't have the full concept of what God's doing in our lives embraced even when we think we do but they knew that there was a specific purpose and intent for which Jesus had them waiting in Jerusalem. Now yes he's made this promise and this promise, as we looked at, they were interpreted as being for Israel. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about Israel. It's about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that tells me that whatever we can conceptualize in our minds that God will do, Ephesians 3.20, He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above everything we ask or think in our minds according to His power that works within us. So let's settle this real quick. I don't know what God's doing. And you don't know what God's doing. And that is politically. That is in ministry. That is in our lives personally. We don't know what He's up to. But we can rest assured that we know we are waiting on something. That there is something He is forming and shaping in this null and void state that you might find yourself in this morning. The second thing they had, not only did they know that they were specifically clearly waiting on something, but the second thing they possessed is the recall of their past experiences. Now, Acts is an incredible book for, multi, for a multitude of different reasons. And I want to look at one of those reasons here briefly. In the first three verses, we see the introduction to the writing of Acts. So Acts was written by a man by the name of Luke. And Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a highly trained, highly educated intellectual individual, but he was also a Gentile. We believe that Luke is the only Gentile who authored any of uh, the uh, New Testament books, specifically the Gospels. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Jesus according to Luke, and then Acts is literally a part two, a sequel to Luke's Gospel. So the two are meant to be read together, and when we do that, we find something incredible. I'm going to show you that in a moment. But anyway, Luke begins his account of Acts by referencing his former account of the gospel of Jesus. In verse 1, he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to both do and to teach. Until the very day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To those he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The authorship of Acts being attributed to Luke is incredibly significant because Luke references here his prior work of the gospel. And so let's just kind of backtrack for a moment and turn back, uh, proverbially speaking, we're not going to read it literally, but turn back a couple books in the New Testament into Luke's gospel. Because again, Luke was was one of the most intellectual men of the Bible. I believe Paul was probably top of the list as far as intellectual men in the New Testament, and Luke was likely a close second, and that's why Luke joined forces with Paul in Acts chapter 16 and basically stayed with him to the death. I believe there were two peas in a pod, as uh, we would say here in Kentucky. But anyway, Luke's work of the gospel was highly, highly strategic. It begins like this, the gospel story in Luke chapter 2. In those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the entire world should be taxed. So get this perspective. Luke is going to look at the gospel, but he begins his gospel story in chapter 2 verse 1. In those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. And so I don't really have a proper way to illustrate this, but picture it if you will like a funnel. Okay, so Luke begins with this wide range of, geographically speaking, referencing the Roman government. He talks about Caesar Augustus. Okay, so this was one of the main rulers in in Roman government that oversaw Israel at that time. And Luke begins with that in his book, in his gospel. In those days, way off, stretched way far out, you know, there comes a decree from Caesar Augustus that the entire world should be taxed. And from that very moment, he begins to, uh, to, uh, to zoom in, if you will. He begins a funnel process, if you will. And the end of his gospel ends right here at one specific location, one specific purpose with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. Okay, so it's a funnel. It begins with Rome, the greatest empire of the world at that time. And then it gets specific all the way down to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. Then check out... How Acts is formulated, it's the exact opposite. It begins in Jerusalem. Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been buried. Jesus has been resurrected. Now Jesus is walking on the earth with his disciples. Then Jesus disappears up into the sky. But before Jesus disappears up into the sky, he says to his disciples, Hey guys, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. The uttermost parts of the earth. And it's no accident that Luke's work of the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome as a free man temporarily to preach the gospel of Jesus. It is necessary that we understand Acts by understanding Luke's previous work. And if we are going to survive times of preparation in our lives, we must recall our own past experiences. We must remind ourselves of what we have seen God do in the past. Without Luke's gospel, Acts really doesn't make sense. And in our lives, we will never make sense out of what God is doing if we're not willing to jog our memories and go back and recall every other time when we felt lonely and destitute and hopeless and we thought there was no way in this world anything good would come out of our lives and then God showed up and He made something out of this formlessness and out of this great void and He made a beautiful creation and just the same as He's done it before, He can do it again today. They possess the ability to recall 
their own past personal experience. And finally, I'm going to share this with you in closing. They had a full recognition. Let, let me backtrack just a moment. They knew they were waiting on something. The promise of the Father. They didn't understand it all, but they knew there was a purpose. God's working a purpose in your life and in our church and in everything we can, uh, we, we can discuss this morning. They recalled their past experiences. We can go back and we can see what God's done in our lives. And if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I've never seen God. He's never worked in my life. You're at the right place at the right time because that work can begin today when we sing the, the uh, final worship song. We open the altar. We would love for you to come this morning and surrender your life to Jesus and allow Him to begin that work. And then finally, they recognized what they were participating in at present. This was, in other words, this was not perceived. This, this event where Jesus just, you know, he's walking along, talking. You're going to receive power, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses, and then, bam, he just disappears up into the sky. This was not perceived as we read further into the first chapter, it was not perceived as a, as a negative occurrence. But they were rather like, wow, what in the world just happened? We have got to really get busy about doing something and be ready and be prepared for whatever is going to happen. And we don't know what it is, but we know that we're involved in something good. Even when life is not good, you can rest assured that when you are seeking the face of God, when you're trying your best to walk in the will of God, when you're living according to His purpose and intent in the world, even when life is not good, He's still working for good in your life. You see, there's a, there, there's a depth of value when we see this event exegetically. Let's go back to uh, that statement. I think it was in verse Nine. Actually, yeah, verse 9, we'll begin there. And after he had said those things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And so again, Luke is a highly intellectual man. He's a physician, he's a doctor, and uh, he, he, he's, he, he's not just a regular Joe. And there's a, there's, there's a, there's a lot of content that we're going to dig deep to see and some that we just won't have time to cover. That's why I encourage you to study this on your own along with your study guide throughout the week. But something is, is presented for us here in the disciples' reaction that we only see exegetically. We don't see it in the, in the English language. The first thing we see is when verse 9, Luke says that they... Uh, were looking on as Jesus was taking up from them. The phrase looking on is translated out of one Greek word, and it's the Greek word blepo. And blepo means to be glued into something. So you're sitting there listening to a guy talk and you're glued in, but it's not just about your eyes are fixed on that thing, but it has a, it has a statement to the mental capacity. So it means that, okay, the pastor's talking and you're not thinking about, man, my belly's growling, I'm hungry, I'm ready for lunch, or I can't wait to get in the pool today, or I can't wait to go to the lake, or hop on the motorcycle, or blah, 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 whatever you're going to do this afternoon, take a nap, whatever your day consists of. But your entire mental capability, your entire cognitive capability is glued in to that very event that you're at. That's the word Luke uses for them looking on. Their entire mind is invested in what's happening. And then in the next verse, it tells us that as Jesus is taken up into heaven, that they are gazing intently as he has taken from them. This word, these, these words, gazing intently, are translated from one Greek word, atinizo. And atinizo means to have the eyes fixed. 
And so before this, they had, they had just had their entire minds engulfed in what was going on. And now that Jesus starts to lift up off the ground and be received up into the sky, their eyes are fixed and they don't know that there's anything else in the world. That's all that was going on to those men and women. What had they just witnessed? What had just occurred before their very eyes? What were they so powerfully, dynamically connected to in that moment? I believe it was the presentation of a heavenly coronation of Jesus being crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If any other man in that time frame of, of history would have been crowned a king, newly crowned a king, he would have paraded through the streets in a coronation ceremony and everyone would have recognized his authority. But Jesus' ascension to heaven from earth was his divine coronation to declare that he is king of kings. He's lord of lords. And he will reign forever. And we fast forward all the way to the end of the New Testament to the final book of Revelation. And when John sees Jesus, he sees him sitting on his throne. Behold, I saw he who was dead and now he's alive and he lives forevermore and he possesses the keys of death and of hell. They recognized that they were part of the grand coronation ceremony of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so, yes, he's gone. But we have to serve this king in his absence. We have to walk in light of the fact that we have been transformed. Our lives have been revolutionized by none other than this newly crowned king. Because we're given the promise. Remember when those two, two angels were standing beside of us and we're here in a circle of, of a group of people and all of a sudden Jesus just disappears and those two angels are standing beside us and they say, don't stand here and gaze because just as he disappeared, he will surely come again. John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. Yes, there was a time of preparation. Things were formless and they were void. But God was preparing that creation for humanity. So that humanity, when He created man in His own image and His own likeness, would have plants to feast on and beasts to feast on and fish to feast on and the entire earth to sustain Him. And for the same purpose, He has created the church for the hurting and the dying. The church is not a museum of saints, but rather a hospital for the dirtiest, sickest, filthiest of sinners that are found anywhere in the four corners of the earth. We are given the task of serving in the name of this eternally crowned King who's coming again. But until then, He's preparing. Is He preparing you this morning? Are you saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to work in my heart? I want you to work in my life. Or you just kind of standoffish in your faith and say, well, uh, God, God, you're there when I need you. But are you really saying this morning, God, I want to be a part of what you're doing in this earth. 
Yes, we are perhaps living in some of the most, some of the greatest times of political unrest in our lifetime. But perhaps we're also living through the greatest moment to seek Jesus that we've ever experienced. So you're going to line up. Are you going to line yourself up this morning and say, Lord, I need I need you. Every hour, I need you. God, I need you to begin working in my life. Because that is the moment the revolution begins in you. And I'll say it again this week, that this world doesn't need another political opinion, another political figure, another, another political party. But this world needs people who have begun to experience a revolution comes only from Jesus, that is more contagious than any disease known to man, it spreads like wildfire, and offers hope and joy and peace. And that begins with you and I this morning. Stand with me as we pray together. Father, we are so thankful.